0: Hello, I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. Thanks for tuning in to the Goop Podcast. Every week, Goop's Chief Content Officer, Elise Lunin, will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Elise's guest today is Bob Sutton. Bob is a professor at Stanford and the author of brilliant books like The No Asshole Rule and The Asshole Survival Guide. Bob once told us, for better or worse, I'm the asshole guy. But of course, his work encompasses a lot more. Bob studies organizational change, leadership, innovation, and workplace dynamics. He examines friction, why organizations sometimes make the right things too hard to do and the wrong things too easy, and what we can do about it. If you're having a hard time navigating office dynamics, or even if you're just in the middle of an unpleasant encounter with someone in your life, you're going to get a lot from hearing Bob talk today.
1: Straight out of the research on self-awareness, is the, is, is we can't, I would be very wary of one's own opinion of oneself, that having people in our life who can tell us the truth and we can listen to is one of the most precious things.
0: Okay, time for today's chat.
2: So I love this line in your latest book, The Asshole Survival Guide. You said, even if you are a winner and an asshole, you are still a loser as a human being in my book. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, so there's a mythology of assholeness in the culture, right? There's this idea that some of the greatest leaders or the people who win are jerks. Yeah, yeah,
1: so so, let's talk about that since you started with the question almost everybody starts with. So there's different parts of that. There are some situations where leaving people feeling demeaned, de-energized, and disrespected may help you as an individual. If you are in a zero-sum game and you don't need them for anything and all you're doing is it's winner-take-all and everybody else loses... And There's not repeat games, you don't need their cooperation, you don't need their help. Then, actually, that works. Okay. Just so, so, like, my and it's actually quoted in the, the book, my friend Jeff Effer, co author, he says, If you put a python and a chicken in the cage, the python wins, and that's true, unless the python wants the eggs, and then maybe the Python might want to keep the chicken alive, and might win in the long term. It's sort of a weird analogy, but so so if 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 you, I wrote two books with him. I've been arguing with him like for decades. But 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 if if you if you look at situations in the workplace, anytime you need people's cooperation, making them feel respected, making them feel psychologically safe, getting their opinions, getting their efforts and commitment. That's why you'd want to treat them with respect. And then the other thing, just for holding together your organization, I mean, we now have, I think, 100,000 studies. If you go through all things assholes, since you're calling me the asshole guys, I'm going <laughs> to, you, you just sort of like do a, a Google Scholar search. In, on one si- side, you put physical and mental health. Really, it makes people sick to feel as if they're being treated like dirt. We can talk about the various flavors of that. And then when people feel demeaned and de energized, they're less productive, they're less committed, they're less creative, they make more mistakes on and on. So yes, you might get ahead as a jerk, but you are destroying things around you.
2: And it's heavily contagious, right? Oh,
1: yeah, so, so one, of, one of the um, phrases in psychology, famous paper, bad is stronger than good. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that any sort of bad behavior, stealing, lying, negative emotions in particular, they're more contagious. Uh, the line is, they spread like a common cold. so that, And that's one of the most reliable ways. If you want to turn into a jerk, start hanging out with one or two or three. It's very contagious.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, obviously we see it with young kids. But then I think it becomes even more insidious and evident in bigger organizations. In because yep. it's sometimes harder to identify. Like you talk about that idea of like you, sometimes you're around it so much, you've, you stop losing your ability to smell it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I guess it's just normal. And, and so this actually brings up something that's also kind of relevant because there's different definitions. And I, what is it? I, I am a scholar. I do have a PhD, and <laughs> and and have done a lot of research. And I think I think that it's important to get a little definition. I, I, my focus is on people who feel demeaned, de-energized, and disrespected. And although there's a whole bunch of behaviors, you could say, that are clear, they're unlawful, sexual harassment, assault, maybe screaming insults, which, by the way, isn't against the law in most right. organizations. It's not against the law to be an equal opportunity asshole in most states in the United States. In fact, in all states in the United States, as long as you're not hitting somebody or uh, engaging in sexual assault or actually ageism, racism, sexism, things like that. But to sort of go back that there's some behaviors that are just fine. And it's sort of like a, one of my friends, I'll give you an example. She, Kim Scott. I don't know if you've interviewed Kim Scott, Mm-mm. author of Radical Candor. She's wonderful. So she managed teams in Israel and Japan. Okay. And she's a southerner. And she said, so in Israel, we just scream at each other all day because that's, that's kind of normal for Israeli culture. And I did some research on expression of emotion with Israelis and we just scream at each other all day long. And it was just normal. And, and it was loving screaming. But but then she goes to Japan and like screaming, this is, uh, no, you don't scream at people in Japan. It's it's a much different sort of culture. So the question of what leaves somebody feeling demeaned, de-energized, it's not simply the behavior. Although, you know, there's some things that like, since I've heard so many asshole stories over the years, one of my favorite one, a, a famous TV host who I won't name. I remember this woman described to me that he flicked a lit cigarette at her. I think that would qualify as an asshole move in almost any culture. Yes, agree. But but a lot of it is the cultural context.
2: Right, and how it how it lands and yes. how it's how it's internalized. So, you know, within the book you sort of talk about it's like the glancing interactions, you're never going to see the person again, you have a terrible encounter uh-huh. with someone at a in line at the airport. Then there are the ones where maybe it's a coworker who you don't work with directly, mm-hmm. but you're able to skirt them. Right. And then there are the ones who can potentially ruin your mental health. So I guess starting with, let's go through advice for all of them. Okay. So let's say you encounter someone who's kind of horrible. Like mm-hmm. what are your, because like you give a lot of, in this book in particular, you give a lot of advice. Like what, what do you do? What does so, Bob
1: say? What, do? what, what do I do? Well, I, let's say what I try to do. Since okay. I'm a human being and I do fail and, and, and <laughs> I, I call myself out as an asshole late towards the end of the book for something. I wrote a nasty email to a student and then I was called in my <laughs> department chair's office and told to apologize to him. And he was exactly right. So that's how when the no asshole rule works. I was actually the asshole who was – because – It so, happens. It happens. And sometimes,
2: you know, sometimes you have an encounter with someone at work who's an asshole for a day and then it disappears yeah, as well. Yeah.
1: So, so what do you do? So, so, so let's let's start out with two definitions of terms. I think it's really important. So, so the the criteria or the continuum you're giving is from a brief encounter from with somebody you'll never see before – to somebody who sort of is on the edge, to somebody you kind of, or a group you have to work with every day. And certainly on that continuum, the more likely it's temporary, it's not your fault, and and you can easily escape from it, and that they don't have ongoing power over you. Power is really a big mm-hmm. issue. The, the more I would kind of suggest, I call these mind tricks to protect your soul or cognitive behavioral therapy. So doing things like, Reminding yourself it's temporary. It's not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't take it personally. They're just an asshole doing, person doing asshole things. If you're on a plane or a bus, we've probably all seen the situations where if you could get your seat away from them, even or move, uh, there, there's different ways because c- it's very contagious and the like. But to the extent that you're in a situation where the person has power over you, Mm-hmm. And, and and it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, relentless exposure and then the two distinctions that I make that are really important and you already implied about this are they a temporary asshole? We're all capable of being temporary assholes under the wrong conditions. Experimental psychologists are brilliant at finding ways to annoy human beings. <laughs> you know, puzzles they can't solve, exposing the famous study in Michigan where, where literally, speaking of turning somebody an asshole, if you bump into somebody and call them an asshole, it turns out they become assholes, especially if they're Southerners, by the way. <laughs> Don't ask me why. Culture of honor, is, was the, I guess, is what they said. But so it's, are they temporary? And, and then there's this other distinction, which my wife identified. My wife was at one point managing partner of a large law firm. So uh, asshole management was part of her job. And so she'd have to talk to them when they were rude to staff members or to young associates. And she had this distinction between temporary assholes and not, I'm sorry, between strategic assholes and clueless assholes. So strategic assholes. So these are the ones who assholes finish first. Yeah, that's all I'm going to get ahead. And then the clueless ones who are more socially inept. Mm-hmm. That and they don't realize it. That they're or they're just so focused. There. So and 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 so my wife Marina used to always say that the the strategic assholes were actually easier to deal with because if you could convince them it was in their best interest. For example, their pay was going to be docked, or people were saying bad things about them behind their back. That they, they were more likely to change their behavior. But the ones who didn't have the social skills, yeah, um, or the focus actually were more difficult and would actually feel especially terrible. So. So some of it is reading the situations. But to, but, but to go back to, I guess, some elements of your question, to me the big question is how much power does the person have over you? And in some ways, how much? What? What are your options? Can you get out? And that's where I really look at this situation. So, so if they have a lot of power over you, then uh, you got to be sort of careful because. and, And the evidence basically is is if you document, and if there is a posse, you might be able to fight back. Against a boss, and the better documented is that the extreme case in modern times that I talk some about sexual harassment and assault, but I'm talking about mostly legal assholeism. But um, to the extent that you don't have power of the person, it's more difficult. It's great if you're the head of the organization and you do something like enforce a no asshole rule. Uh, the, I, I collect, you know, examples of organizations that seem or at least claim to have no asshole rules. One of my favorite ones, uh, Shonda Rhimes, the famous producer, she supposedly has a no asshole rule in Shondaland and, uh, and they take that seriously and talk about that a lot. The late Anthony Bourdain is somebody who claimed mm-hmm. to live by the no asshole rule. So if you espouse it and you have it. And you have the power, you might be able to uh, yeah. enforce it.
2: It makes good business sense, particularly because it is so so infecting for so many people. I mean, beyond the people who feel victimized, it's no one wants to work
0: there,
1: right? Yeah. So, so it is interesting in, in in terms of business sense, in addition to all the evidence and everything, and I sort of have two reactions. One is the better the job market is in, in general. If you, and we're at a time where unemployment is quite low and the job market is quite good. So, th- so that means that employees have more power. So even the assholes have to pretend to be nice to them because uh, they're not going <laughs> to leave. So, I mean, if, if, if I was a cynical labor economist, I would say, well, they'd say, well, the labor market's tighter, so you got to pretend to be nicer to them even if you hate them. I mean, that's like a really cynical move. But, but to be less cynical, I do think, and I think this is kind of a secondary effect of, of Me Too in part, and the harassment in the Catholic Church, and then you start going down to sort of um, milder effects, it, it, I think and this is a case where the media, because the media loves stories about how when you've got a boss who's a jerk, it's bad for your physical health, it's bad for your mental health, it's contagious, it's actually when the boss has been a jerk, there's a new study that um, the boss can't sleep for a couple of nights after that, I mean, there's, there, there's, like, there's all of this stuff that shows that, that it's bad, and, and I think that as a result of a combination of forces, we're seeing that being if you will, a legal jerk Um, which is an equal opportunity asshole in most states, is getting to be a bigger and bigger problem. So although some of the harassment that happened at Uber was unlawful, probably, um, in general, that was a really, really nasty culture under the last CEO, Travis, and they really are trying to change the culture. Uh, So you're starting to see, to me, some signs that it's viewed as more of a business risk.
2: Right. No, it makes sense and I think obviously culturally I think people are are tired of it, right? Like in a way we get we're getting enough of it right. everywhere else, like let's preserve some humanity at work and then and also because it percolates down, right? It and it it, it it affects how you affect people on your way home, how you treat your children how you treat your husband or wife. Yeah,
1: so, yeah so, so this notion of, to your point, that, I mean, the, the old the redirected aggression, it's like a Freudian thing, like I've learned that like in like 1970 <laughs> or something when I was a psychology major, but you know, it's like the boss yells at the guy, the guy comes home, that uh, the classic sort of, you know, 50s household, he he yells at the kids and the kids kick the dog. Well, actually, empirically, that seems to happen, that, that when those of us face nastiness at work, we tend to take it out on those who are around us.
2: So in the research, what's the if you're not in a power over situation, if you're mm-hmm. you're you're able to sort of distance yourself. I love sort of the research in the book about how we have far fewer conversations with people who are farther away than like sixty feet. Or oh yeah, something. once
1: you get away so famous research, this guy, Tom Allen at MIT, if you get more than sixty or seventy feet from somebody, you rarely talk to them. And if they're on a different floor. Forget it's like it. they, they in fact, literally, we're sitting in this building engineering school in in the, the Department of Management, Science and Engineering. Most of it is on the floor above us. And one of the reasons I love my office <laughs> and I and I have just very few assholes in my department, by the way, but I just don't interact with them very much just because they're on another floor. It's just fabulous. Because yeah. I'm sort of an introvert, so I like to just hide in my office.
2: And you can apply that to anything, the people behind you in the movie theater. Although that was an amazing retort in the book when you write about how the people behind someone were talking, I don't know if you remember this, and they wouldn't stop talking and they tried glaring at them. And then they waited till it got really quiet. And then the one guy turned to his friend and said, what do you want to talk about really loudly? That's right. And the other guy said, I don't know, but let's talk about it later.
1: So I appreciate that you (laughs) know what's in my book better than I do. And this this happens to me, like I write stuff. You know, what happens also with books is, that, and all authors can tell us, is you take stuff in and out. So sometimes I'll start talking about stuff that I've actually cut out of the book that I believe is in the book. (laughs) So thank you for finishing that.
2: (laughs) I wasn't going to leave you hanging. That would have been an asshole move.
1: (laughs) That was very socially sensitive, actually.
0: Let's take a short breather.
2: There's a lot of stuff nobody tells you about pregnancy. Here's what I wish someone had told me, that I would stop sleeping early on in pregnancy, that I would bleed a lot, both during delivery and after, that you really won't care if you poop on the table. Here's what I really wish someone had told me, that a single prenatal pill probably isn't enough, particularly if you are not an immaculate eater. I'm not a doctor, and I've never played one on TV, But after I had my first kid, I met with a functional medicine practitioner who practices in the Australian bush. His name is Dr. Oscar Sarelak, and he's come to specialize in helping women recover after kids. In his family practice, and with his own partner, Dr. Sarelak was finding that women were just not feeling like themselves even a few years after giving birth, which has also been my experience and something that I know a lot of moms I've talked to can relate to. Dr. Saralak put me on a vitamin and supplement regimen, which the team at Goop eventually worked with him on so that we could make it available to more women. We call it the mother load. It's essentially the Rolls Royce of prenatal vitamins. It's ideally taken leading up to and throughout pregnancy and then some months after, which is pretty easy to do because everything you need is broken up into daily packets. Each packet includes six tablets, including DHA. There's also a multivitamin, a calcium and magnesium tablet, and a dose of choline. It's the jam. I took the motherload to rebuild post-baby, and if I ever had another kid, I would take the motherload the whole time. You can learn more about the motherload on Goop along with our other vitamin protocols, Balls in the Air, Why Am I So Effing Tired, Madam Ovary, and High School Jeans. Like I said, each box of vitamins and supplements comes with 30 daily packets, and you can subscribe so you never run out. If you wanna go ahead and order a box of the motherload now, we'll include a second box on us. Just go to goop.com slash motherload podcast and enter promo code MOTHER. That's goop.com slash motherload podcast and use promo code Mother to get a 30-day supply on us.
0: Okay, let's get back to Elise and Bob.
2: So Going back to this idea of how we learn to live with things, mm-hmm. is it does it actually adjust our reality? Do we just become so habituated to it that it's it's just we think that that's normal, or we're so invested that we well, don't well, extricate? Well,
1: so, so, so if you look at research on situations where people encounter repeated abuse, so mm-hmm. research on on bullying, good uh, U.S. national surveys, sort of thirty or so percent of the time for most of us will have a period of time where we feel like we're bullied in, on an extended basis, maybe 10% of the workforce at any one time, that has long-term negative effects on people.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so if, so if you're feeling dragged down by it, and then once you're in one of those sort of extended bullying situations, to me, the first thing is if you can quit, and I'm mm-hmm. a really big believer in quitting, getting out of bad situations, I'm a big believer in not being stupid about it, but sometimes people can't quit I, I, I get so many notes from people who are a year from retirement, mm-hmm. a woman who just who was working for a horrible federal judge who would, was constantly abusing and screaming at everybody but if she quit one year into her two-year clerkship she really her career was like really serious damage. So to me, then the next set of things are, I call these Jedi or, uh, or mind tricks to protect your soul. It's basically cognitive behavioral therapy. I've talked to my therapist about this. Like I use my therapist to help me write my book. I have a very good therapist. And so that's things like finding some ways to be emotionally detached. So it doesn't touch your soul, not taking it personally, seeing the humor in it. One of my favorite ones, and it's funny, I just talked to him. I can't use his name, but there's a Stanford employee, no? who is the best person at dealing, uh, he's, he's a kind of a middle manager type, the best person I know at dealing with um, the many assholes that we have at Stanford. We don't have too many, but there's enough that he has to deal with them. And what he does, this is a great, he pretends that he's an assholeologist, which is kind of funny because that's <laughs> sort of what I am. And, it, and when somebody starts acting out and being abusive, he tells himself how lucky he is because it's like a specimen. Like he's never actually seen this kind of behavior close up. And if you think about that, that's one of those sort of like emotional distancing strategies that that you're like looking at the specimen behind the glass. So, so that's one set of strategies. The other kind of strategies is to just to limit contact with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I talk about lots of examples of, of, of that in the book, being slow to respond, literally mm-hmm. finding out what their schedule is. One of my favorite ones, which I've actually heard of a lot of examples of, is uh, the the classic thing is sometimes bosses will be temperamental and sometimes the executive assistant will alert people it's a bad day to meet with the boss so you can use social networks. And then I do encourage people to fight back but not to be stupid about it. So, So fighting back is if you have less power you need a posse, as I've said you need documentation and then you need to find somebody more powerful who often supports you. Unfortunately, many times it is not human resources. Human resources is often there to protect the people who, who have power, not uh, necessarily the people who, who are abused. But if you look at if, if you look at situations where people have toppled the boss, they tend to join together. They tend to have it well documented, and then they find tend to find somebody. A university president.
2: Yeah, I love that idea of getting curious and becoming sort of a clinical researcher. Like what's <laughs> yeah. driving this person? What are they achieving? I, my What I like to do, I think I learned this from my brother, is when someone's being really obnoxious, then I pretend like I didn't hear it. Then I ask them, I'm like, oh, excuse me? Like, can you repeat that? I miss that. And just oh, like sometimes uh, the act of repeating oh, it. Oh, that's
1: passive aggression. That's really effective passive yes. aggression.
2: And, you know, when they have to say it again, I think they, that's when they start to become well, That's conscious that's a new one. So oh, like, God, let's write another book. I've, I've had two abusive bosses in my career, which I feel fortunate about because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people encounter a lot more of that. Uh-huh. The first time I had to get to the point of walking because I was like, why am I in therapy for right. like a panic disorder? I need to get out of here. And it was the it was my first job, and so I didn't know. I'd never found another job. And then once I learned how to do uh-huh. that, I knew I could get myself out of any bad situation. So I'm totally with you. I think... If so, you can, you bounce.
1: But So good for you that you quit. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, because uh, some, to your point, I think people start thinking that it's normal to, to be sick and upset um, all the time. And there's, there's other reasons that you know, people may have mental health problems. They may have other sources of stress um, that may make them cra- crazy. But I mean, the evidence is that if somebody is leaving you feeling demeaned and de-energized every day, whether it's because you're thin-skinned or they're treating you like dirt or some combination of the two it's probably best not to be in this situation.
2: Exactly. And I knew enough at that point, I, I from, again, posse uh-huh. and from observing behavior to know that I certainly wasn't alone, mm-hmm. um, which was enough for me to understand, like, um, what's my part in this? Uh-huh. Maybe I don't have as much of a part. I need to get out of it. Like, I don't own this. I need to get out of it. I do have a certain responsibility to right. myself. So, and then the second time, I prevailed but you know i had to go to the mat i had to pay a price for it but
1: (laughs) so 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 it is interesting there's some there's some newer research on bullying bully bosses abusive supervision and the general argument was well you don't fight unless you're going to win but there's some hints that if you fight whether you win or lose although I do recommend having an option that because it makes you feel as if you have control over the situation, that fighting back might um, have positive benefits, especially to me if you're somebody who doesn't ruminate a lot. would probably be good.
2: Or for me, it was knowing that I had options. So lining up options and then being in a position to say, like, I will go to the mat for this or I will go, but I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to stand here and let it happen. So that worked out. And I knew I could walk. So for me, that's what I need. That's a safety net. Um, that's pretty cool. But it's amazing how many people experience this. And it is totally paralyzing. Mm-hmm. And particularly when you feel like your livelihood is at stake. W- at what point, and you talk about this a fair <sighs> amount too. And, and again, in thinking about like what part do I play. Uh-huh. At what point are you, do you sort of coach people to look in the mirror and turn, like, if they continue to be in the same dynamic, at some point, is it them? Like, what are they?
1: Well, so to me, there's two. <laughs> there's two parts of. That. Okay, so so if you're feeling as if you're being consistently abused, either by one or multiple people, it's they call that mobbing in the in the mm-hmm. especially European academic literature. To me, there's two parts of the equation. The first part of the equation is that if you are, for whatever reason, feeling demeaned, disrespected by how people are treating you at work, it's probably not a good situation. And you at least need to develop short-term coping styles. And we've talked about some of some of these things, seeing the humor in it, distancing mm-hmm. emotionally, uh, distancing physically. But then there, to me, and then possibly looking for other options. But then there's a second part, which is that it is entirely possible that, uh, that it's all or part of your fault. Mm-hmm. And and this is uh, you know one of the lines I use in the book, which is a whole bunch of research on self-awareness supports, is that the, if you want to figure out if somebody is an asshole, the last person you want to ask is that person because we all have such bad self-awareness. So, you know, essentially, what 35% of Americans say they've been bullied sometime in the workplace, and less than one half of one percent say they've been the bully. So something's wrong with that number. So so the other part of that is to try to figure out ways that you are making your situation worse. So one of the classic things is that if everywhere you go, um, people are treating you like dirt, it might be that uh, you are throwing the shit at them and they are throwing the shit back at you and you are just a thin-skinned narcissist. So that's where having <laughs> somebody in your life who can sort of pull you aside and sort of tell you the truth. And I think I think that that we all know that. I mean, so one example. It's funny because I'm talking to one of his mentees tonight in Silicon Valley. There's a famous guy named Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell. He he did things like he was CEO of Intuit, and but but what he was most famous for was sort of being the CEO whisperer. I mean, he was on Apple's board and would go for a walk every day with uh, Steve Jobs. And at the same time, he was working for free, helping the Google team, even when they were competitors and infamous, famous guy. He passed away recently. And and that was one of the things that, uh, although people say, oh, Steve Jobs is an asshole, it actually wasn't that simple. And I talk about this in, uh, in the Asshole Survival Guide. Steve Jobs, from all reports, actually got better
0: mm-hmm. towards
1: the end of his life, especially after he experience all the trouble with next and and actually almost wanted a business in pixar and uh, got kicked out of apple But bill campbell was one of the people who could talk to steve about his behavior and how he needed to change his behavior And what might be more constructive for him? So so having people in your life who can? sort of give you the feedback both to call you out when you've been an asshole and stopping you from being an asshole. Another great Bill Campbell story, this guy named Ben Horowitz, he's the principal in one of our most successful venture capital firms, Andreessen Horowitz. Ben Horowitz talks about uh, when early in his career, he did a large layoff when he was a, a senior executive. And Bill Campbell said, okay, what you need to do when you lay people off is don't hide in your office, go give them a hug. Help them carry their boxes out to the car, thank them. And he said, there's two reasons. One is there'll be less fear in the organization. And the other thing is it's a long life. You may see them again. <laughs> so <laughs> treating them well, well, you might wanna hire them, they might wanna hire you. So it's true. So, so that, but the general thing that I'm talking about, and this straight out of the research on self awareness, is, the, is, is we can't, I would be very wary of one's own opinion of oneself. That having people in our life who can tell us the truth and we can listen to is one of the most precious things.
2: Exactly, the ability of someone who can sit in the discomfort with you. Yes, right?
1: yes, I love that. Sit in the discomfort with you.
2: And and when you're talking about laying people off, like being able to sit in that discomfort with people too, is yeah. pretty powerful. So, what's the solution? I know in the back of the uh, book you sort of outline like how how to be sort of a good boss right like how to build a a thoughtful organization
1: so so to me there's no magic bullets but there's three or four things that organizations do that make them reasonably civilized places one is just having somebody at the top who is Mm self-aware and when they act like a jerk they apologize for it They, they call out their behavior and the behavior of others this is A woman named Amy Edmondson at Harvard has done a lifetime of research on psychological safety. They make it safe for people don't feel like they're walking on eggshells around them. Mm -hmm. So there's the CEO's behavior. Then the other thing that I really focus on, who you hire, how you train them, and so on, is all very important. But if I want to sort of cut to the quick, the questions that I will ask executives and people from other companies is, So tell me what it takes to be a superstar here. Mm. And regardless, they can have all the values on the wall. They can talk about no bullying, no asshole rules. Lots of organizations have no asshole rules that are filled with assholes. And uh, or no bullying, no jerk rules. But if you are promoting people who are stars and treat people in a demeaning fashion, but because they're stars, you're afraid to sort of deal with them, that's when you start having problems. And I give one, one example of an organization that actually does this well, and I know them because I had open heart surgery there, and their uh, uh, medical care, especially surgeons, are infamous for being nasty. The Cleveland Clinic, which has the best outcomes for heart surgery in the country, I believe, if you are an asshole and a superstar surgeon, doesn't work. hmm and, uh, and, and they really do mean... I mean, it's not like surgeons don't have ego. It's not like there isn't constructive conflict. But if you can create an environment where people are stars and they um, treat other people like dirt then you and you don't reward them for it, then to me that's sort of the the acid test. But as I say, there's a bunch of other little things you can do in select in socializing and who you fire and who you critique. But that's the diagnostic question I ask.
2: And how important is it for the health of an organization? And I know mm. I know you've become sort of the asshole guy by <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just by by virtue of writing a popular book about it and now two popular books, uh. but that you work all you also Primarily work in friction, scale, and other right. parts of organizational psychology. So, what is the what are the main impediments to scale? What are the biggest cancers within companies? That's a big question. But.
1: Well, the, well, yeah, that is a big. Well, so so, so to me, I, I'm not, that is a big, big. But but if I was going to pick a a cancer that's sort of asshole related, that that has wide ranging effects, there's large scale studies, including some. Uh, Fairly recent stuff from um, Google, the stuff that I would start with is uh, Amy Edmondson's research on psychological safety. And that does get to the asshole problems, but it also gets to errors. It It gets to having, when you have authority relations, that actually people are safe and actually feel obligated to call out the boss, to call out one another, when they make errors to loudly say, I have messed up and this is what I have learned. Mm-hmm. And and to me that that notion of all the elements of uh, of psychological safety, if I if I was going to pick one thing for building a culture, that's something I would pick, and it's really a hard thing to maintain because it sounds really simple. Oh, and, and lots of bosses say, oh, I know that. But then they promote the people who are the ass kissers, the people who don't give them bad news. And there's, there's a lot of sort of another form of unconscious bias, which is the sort of ass kicking and also that, that happens. And people don't like hearing bad news. Mm-hmm. That's, I've had a lot of bosses who I think are really nice people, but I've learned not to give them bad news because they blame me mm-hmm. um, for it or they don't want to see me again. But So I would start, I would start with psychological safety and, some, uh, and, and generally respect too
2: for people who are leading companies or leading mm. teams who cuz obviously mm. a lot of this is quiet or insidious but, or you're not aware like how do you start to how do you start to find the cockroaches?
1: Oh, I love I love, love them. Find the cock. Well, well. So it is kind of funny how to find the cock. Well, so the sign that you're 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 gonna have, you're gonna be a cockroach or you're gonna create cockroaches. I love this. I could like call the new book, the No Cockroach Rule. Then I could swear as much as I wanted, but there's certain things that that are going to reliably um, turn you and other people into jerks to really look out for. One is just being in a hurry and, and, and this is like modern corporate life you can kind of go on the list the other one is when there's big power differences mm-hmm. that's what you got to be careful about uh, this is uh, being physically and emotionally exhausted sleep deprivation absolutely terrible and then the other thing which you got to be careful about is that when somebody doesn't have power and suddenly becomes powerful they yeah. also are likely to turn into a jerk so to me those are, And then, of course, just being around people who are jerks, it's very, very contagious. But that, to me, those are some of the sort of checklists. And, and in some situations, we, we haven't talked about clients, but there's, I better not use the name of the firms, but there's a couple of professional service firms I know where um, when there's nasty clients, sometimes they have the courage to fire the nasty clients. More often what happens to the nasty clients, honestly, and, and asshole clients out there, you should know this. There's this thing I call asshole taxes, which is what happens in, um, let's just say the professional service firms, which I'm not naming is, well, there's a whole range of consultants and there's the ones who are the great ones and the, the ones who are the, um, the, the weaker ones. You end up with the worst people mm-hmm. because uh, the stronger consultants have a choice of who they work for. And, um, and then the other thing that happens is that very often you'll get charged more money. Because uh, that's a way of sort of exacting revenge. So there's kind of asshole taxes in two ways. <laughs> one is you're charged more, and the other one is you get a less competent help. And, and this has happened informally in every professional service firm that I've known well.
2: Well, if only for that. Everyone needs to change their behavior.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> but whether they're going to be aware of it or not to change their behavior is a whole nother matter, which is why, you I guess know, that's the problem, the, the problem, yeah, the, the situations that turn us into jerks, it's just everywhere.
2: We need to talk about the most probably pervasive assholism in our, <laughs> that, or in our culture, sure. but the ones that you can't see, like the faceless, nameless trolls on social, on, you know, the people that you fight with in the comments section on the New York Times. What's, that and how do you uh, what do you do about well,
1: that so we've already talked about some of the things that bring out nastiness in human behavior and uh, there's a series of experiments that show that when you don't have eye contact with someone it really it becomes more likely that you will lose empathy for them and you will lose your ability to be civilized and it kind of makes sense because, like, right now, if I don't know if I said something. We're sitting across the table from you, each other. If I said something kind of nasty to you, I'd have to, like, sort of look at the pain in your soul. Mm-hmm. But when you don't get that, you naturally become nastier. And the thinner the communication and the more incomplete and negative your stereotype of someone is, the more likely we are to be nasty. So just, you know, in terms of my political outlet, I've just kind of noticed that uh, being a good liberal dem- Democrat, that I can take sitting on a bar stool next to a Trump supporter and have a, I've had multiple great conversations with them that are really where we're searching for middle ground, we're really trying to be supportive. But any other sort of um, communication, telephone, online, because you, you miss the completeness of them as a, as a human being. Mm-hmm. So the, the main lesson there is uh, if you don't have eye contact with someone, be careful.
2: Mm-hmm. And does it have, you know, you mentioned at the beginning when a boss yells... Maybe they can't sleep for days. Uh-huh. When people go online and are nasty or vitriolic, does it impact them? Oh,
1: oh, oh, yes. Oh, oh, yeah. And, Same and, way. And, 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 well, the other part about being online, of course, is that we all, um, as a society, are addicted to our phones. So what I happens haven't is, noticed. Is, is that looking is, is that we get it late at night. We get it during the day. And, and you know, the, the, the big advice I always give people and I give myself is that if you're tired or you're drinking. Um, you should turn off your phone and not write anything. Because I think that those are the t- tired drinking, not having eye contact, it's going to make you nasty. But uh, but the eye contact thing is really a big problem. And, and so my friends, I have a colleague here, Pam Hines, who studies virtual teams and how to do virtual organizations. She is always talking about how when you're having a mediated communication where there's no eye contact, that anything you can do to give the person other context, such as, Telling them I'm look the view, where I'm sitting, what I had for breakfast this morning, what I'm looking forward to, what did your family do over the weekend? Anything you can do like that to humanize the, if you will, mediated thin interaction tends to lead people to communicate better, especially emotionally and to have more respect and, and also to exchange information better. So and, and and even people who work in virtual teams, my like, like my poor friends who are like uh, work for companies where in Silicon Valley, there'll be seven different locations. Mm-hmm. The senior executives who spend all the time on planes uh, talking to their people face to face. It's ruining their lives, but it's probably the right thing to do from an organizational effectiveness and humanity perspective.
2: I love to the anecdote when you're talking about Churchill and Churchill's wife and the letter. well, that
1: I remember I remember that one.
2: you do remember that one <laughs> yes, yeah, so so
1: so 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 this no, this is really important because. And, and I think that you know at least our last president Michelle Obama definitely served this role but, but having somebody in your life even if it's not people in the hierarchy who can tell you when you've been a jerk is one of the most precious things so the story is that uh, this is June 1940 so the U.S. hasn't join the war yet they're bombing the hell out of britain and you know winston churchill is like he's kind of losing it and you can't really deprived he's
2: He's in a hurry
1: (laughs) he's he's in a hurry he's he's literally (laughs) literally his his life is being threatened and uh, so his wife clementine wrote him a note that among other things said you're not as kind as you used to be And then the other thing she said, which was kind of like a mini sort of asshole theory, is that if you start um, abusing people, they will be loyal to you. They won't tell you the truth about things that are wrong. And so she, she sort of, you know, 1940 sort of laid out a lot of a uh, couple thousand behavioral science studies <laughs> but, and, and Bill Campbell, the Bill Campbell, Steve Jobs and Bill Campbell, other people's story. That's the kind of thing that Bill did is he would sort of have the conversations to make CEOs who are in a hurry, maybe rich and famous, uh, maybe, uh, um, you know, sleep, to your point, sleep deprived, powerful and so on to turn them into more human people.
0: Thanks for listening to Elise's conversation with Bob Sutton. To learn more about his work and books, visit bobsutton.net. I hope the rest of your day is asshole free. Now to today's AMA. Gwyneth, you often recommend good sleep as an important tenant in your life. How do you make this happen with real life happening? Exactly, Jesse. It's very, sometimes it's very hard. One thing I do every night is I take a hot bath. And it really, really relaxes me and grounds me. And I kind of really believe in the power of water and think that just that soak in the bath is so important. And I use our, our G night bath soak basically every night it is so potent and so relaxing and it always really helps me get to sleep. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for listening to the Goop podcast. I'll be back on Tuesday interviewing an old friend as part of our special relationship series. I hope you get a chance to tune in. To keep up, just hit subscribe. And if you have a chance, please rate, review, and share with a friend. For more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast.